Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production, where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange. Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Good evening, everybody. This is Terry from Texas. This is another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. So let's get started, shall we? Joan of Arc was a simple peasant who had nothing to do with politics or war. But she got dragged into the English-French politics anyway. She was born to a simple peasant family at Domremy, a small town located in northeast France. She saw visions of the angel Michael, of St. Catherine, and of St. Margaret. In these visions, she was instructed to help the uncrowned Prince Charles VII to become the supreme king. She followed the command of God as she saw it and became a prominent figure in the Hundred Years' War between France and Britain. In the early stages, her fanaticism and leadership qualities won many swift victories for the French and she was proclaimed the heroine of France. Charles VII proclaimed himself King of France but a faction within the close circles of the king wanted to clip Joan's wings. They accused her of deception and witchcraft. It was learned that before her capture in Compiègne, she had lost the favor of Charles VII as the French forces were being routed everywhere. Captured at Compiègne on the battlefield by the allied English and Burgundian forces, she was soon handed over to the English. Joan of Arc was put on trial for as many as 70 charges. She was tried by the pro-English bishop Pierre Cochon. Cochon found her guilty and she was burned at the stake on May 30, 1431 at the tender age of 19 years. This we know from historical records. But there's a long hidden tale that claims she was not executed. There are facts that would make us believe that someone else may have died in Joan's place on the stake that day. There is a considerable doubt over the execution of this French heroine. A tale that went round in those days was very tactfully covered up and never raised again. A common story from the time states that a woman appeared in a village near Metz, France in 1436, five years later, claiming herself to be Joan of Arc. The people who heard her story 
were skeptical and even made fun of her. But the story somehow spread through France. Soon, two of Joan's brothers visited Metz and clearly declared that the woman in question was no one but their sister Joan. But brothers could have their own agenda in bringing back their dead sister. They could be bribed, but what happened next was astonishing. In her time with the French military, she had made many enemies, but some very good friends. Two of her close companions heard of the tale and visited Metz to take a look at this woman. Both these individuals had fought in close quarters with Joan. After meeting the woman, they proclaimed that she was truly Joan of Arc. The woman was even called to the royal court and interviewed by King Charles VII himself. Charles even disclosed to his courtiers that the woman knew many secrets that he had disclosed only to Joan. As time went on, the woman was awarded the title Joan de Armoisit. She was even financially rewarded for her service during the Hundred Years' War. Some of the church services that were taking place in the memory of Joan were stopped on order by the king himself. After a couple of years, it is recorded that the woman allegedly confessed that she really was an impostor who looked similar to Joan. After this incident, the woman was shunned from history once and for all. In 1907, when a noted scholar compared the signature of Joan of Arc against the marriage license of the impostor, she found that both these signatures were a perfect match. The mystery remains, why would Joan of Arc suddenly come out of hiding and disclose her identity, then two years later claim to be an impostor? Another notable question is, in those days when impostors were given severe punishment, often the death penalty, why was this woman pardoned without any action? A group of historians believe that this was again a part of French politics. One reason for Joan of Arc's later military failures was her violent temper, which enraged everyone including the king. Even Charles VII wanted the fall of Joan of Arc but public opinion was in her favor. The king did not want to displease his populace. Thus, he may have taken the back door by sending Joan of Arc into a battle that she could not win. But the king was God-fearing as well. He did not want to displease God, so he may have secretly arranged for the execution of some other woman at the stake in place of Joan. And this would have pleased God? There must have been a deal fetched whereby Joan decided to stay in hiding for the rest of her life. But as was the character of Joan, she could only keep her identity secret for five years. Once the news spread, King Charles VII, too, had to embrace the woman he wanted to obliterate. Maybe he secretly blackmailed Joan or used some other means to make her confess as an imposter. It might have been that Joan was in love in those days and wanted to live like a common person, so she stayed away from politics. She married soon after this incident and lived on peacefully in another land with all her rewards. The gray-garbed ghost of the governor's mansion in Georgia. There was a time when even the august pages 
of the New York Times published ghost stories. In 1908, this curious item appeared. The New York Times, June 2, 1908. Ghost in Governor's House. Wife and daughter of Governor Smith of Georgia say they saw it. Special to the New York Times. Dateline Atlanta, Georgia, June 1st. The ghostly, gray-garbed figure of a young woman, which appears at all hours of the night, is causing the inmates, question, of the executive mansion of Georgia much perturbation. They were mightily vexed. Governor Smith is away nearly all the time engaged in a heated contest for re-election, and the mysterious ghost has been appearing to Mrs. Smith and her daughters. The gray-garbed lady is said to be young and very beautiful. She was first seen by Miss Mary Brent Smith about three weeks ago, about 12 o'clock at night, as the latter returned to the mansion. When Miss Smith entered that hall, she noticed the gray figure before a long mirror. Miss Smith approached, but the figure melted away. Miss Smith, in alarm, told her mother, but the latter ridiculed her daughter. A few nights later, as Mrs. Smith and her daughter were together, the gray-gowned woman appeared to both of them. Mrs. Smith and her daughter were so overcome they fainted. Mrs. Smith related the story of the vision to a physician. Since then, it is said the ghostly woman has appeared frequently. Some say the figure is the ghost of Miss Price, the niece of Governor A.D. Candler, who died in the mansion when her uncle was governor. It is said Miss Price was very happy in the mansion, and when dying said she would revisit the place where she was so happy while in this life. A search of period papers brought up a notice of Miss Alice Price being ill on January 4, 1899. Ten days later, on January 14th, there's a notice that Miss Price passed away. She was related to the governor through his wife and was visiting from Macon, quote, to assist with the social honors at the executive mansion, unquote. Notably, young Miss Price died from typhoid fever, which, according to the paper, she acquired from poor sanitation at the governor's mansion. Now, this governor's mansion is not the first one to be haunted. When the old governor's mansion was in Milledgeville, it was also known to be haunted. Courthouse Creepiness, Caswell County, North Carolina. Caswell County Courthouse, Courthouse Square, Yanceyville, North Carolina. There is a room in the Caswell County Courthouse with a door that opens and shuts on its own accord. According to two different sources, that is the only unknown phenomena reported in this magnificent edifice. But then again, the story behind it really is fascinating. The Caswell County Courthouse is the fourth courthouse and was constructed between 1857 and 1861. The architecture is unusual for a government building of the period in that it employs the Italianate style a style quite different from the other period, Greek Revival buildings in the area. The courtroom located on the second floor 
is noted in one description as one of the most beautiful in the state, with carved benches and partitions and an ornate plaster ceiling. Within this marvelous structure, a heinous act occurred, an act indicative of the area's rough transition following the Civil War. Reconstruction was a difficult process for much of the South. Nearly everything was in upheaval. The economy, cities, and plantations lay in ruins. The social order was askew, and African Americans suddenly were thrust into a new social standing. Add opportunists into this mix, especially Yankees, with a carpet bag in hand and a glint in their eye, and you have an explosive combination. It is against this turbulent backdrop that 34-year-old John Walter Stevens made his arrival in Caswell County. He is described as a difficult fellow, but of course that all depends on who you talk to. Stevens was born in North Carolina and had worked as a tobacco trader as well as being active in the Methodist Church. Apparently, shortly before his move to Yanceyville, he had been involved in a scuffle with a neighbor whose chickens had wandered onto his property. Stevens killed the chickens and the neighbor had him sent to jail. After getting out, Stevens confronted the neighbor with a gun, and in the fight that broke out, two bystanders were wounded. This incident provided Stevens with the nickname Chicken. It was something that he would never live down. While continuing to work as a tobacco trader, Stevens also worked as an agent for the Freedmen's Bureau and was a member of the Republican-affiliated Union League, which helped to control the African-American vote in the South. Needless to say, these things were politically unpopular with the white citizens of Caswell County. Through the efforts of the Union League and the African-American citizens of the county, Stevens was elected to the North Carolina State Senate in 1868. Slanderous gossip was spread through town and Stevens received death threats, but he staunchly remained in his position. Per the affidavit of one John G. Lee, L.E.A., Stevens was tried in absentia by a Ku Klux Klan jury, found guilty, and sentenced to death. This death sentence was carried out on May 21st in 1870 in a storage room on the ground floor of the courthouse. Stevens, who was attending a meeting to nominate county officers and members of the legislature, was lured downstairs and taken into the storage room where a group of KKK members awaited. After Stevens was disarmed of his three... Three? Three pistols, said John Lee rushed in. Lee, the last of the conspirators to die when he passed in 1919, described the scene in an affidavit sealed until after his death. He arose and approached me, and we went and sat down where the wood had been taken away, in an opening in the wood on the wood pile, and he asked me not to let them kill him. Captain Mitchell rushed at him with a rope, drew it around his neck, put his feet against his chest, and by that time 
about a half dozen men rushed up. Tom Oliver, Pink Morgan, Dr. Richmond, and Joe Fowler. That's four. It's not a half dozen. Stevens was then stabbed in the breast and also in the neck by Tom Oliver, and the knife was thrown at his feet and the rope left around his neck. We all came out, closed the door, and locked it on the outside, and took the key and threw it into County Line Creek. The turbulence already boiling in the area rose to a fever pitch after Stephen's murder. The Ku Klux Klan stepped up its terror campaign of African Americans and their white allies throughout the region. In the town of Graham, in Alamance County to the south, an African American town commissioner was lynched in a tree on the courthouse lawn. Republican Governor William W. Holden, upset over the uproar in the area and the political threat to his seat from the mostly white Democrats, declared Caswell County to be in a state of rebellion and sent some 300 troops under the leadership of one George W. Kirk to march on Yanceyville. Under the governor's orders, some 100 local men were rounded up and jailed. With the suspension of habeas corpus, these men were held for some time and quite possibly mistreated during their incarceration. The event, which ended later in 1870, became known as the Kirk-Holden War, despite the distinct lack of fighting. With the August 1870 election, the Democrats swept the legislature. The governor was tried on charges of corruption for his participation in the Kirk-Holden War and removed from office. The New York Times reported in 1873 on a bill in the state legislature to give amnesty to the murderers. It describes a Republican representative giving an explicit account of the murder on the House floor. The bill passed, but it is unknown if it was ever signed into law. Things quieted down in Yanceyville, but there is still discussion of this turbulent bit of local history. And still, the door to the storage room on the courthouse's ground floor opens and closes by itself. Could John Walter Stevens be seeking justice? Various places around Gettysburg saw heavy fighting. At times, the entire town was the battlefield. The citizens hid in cellars, in back rooms, tried to stay out of the line of fire. Certainly, it became a place of the dead. One place on the battlefield, more than others, has a reputation of being haunted by the men who died there. Devil's Den. The event which created the lore and the legend of Devil's Den is undoubtedly the fighting which took place there on July 2nd, 1863, the second day of the battle. But stories surrounded the place long before the battle was ever fought. According to early accounts from the area, the tangled outcropping of rocks was a Native American hunting ground for centuries, and some say that a huge battle was once fought there, and it was called the Battle of the Crows, during which many 
perished. A Gettysburg writer named Emanuel Bushman wrote in an 1880 article of the, quote, many unnatural and supernatural sights and sounds, unquote, that were reported in the area of the Round Tops and what he called the Indian Fields. He wrote that the early settlers had told stories of ghosts that had been seen there and that Indian war whoops could still be heard on certain nights. In addition, he reported that strange Indian ceremonies also took place there. In 1884, Bushman wrote further with the idea that an ancient tribe had once lived near the site of Devil's Den and that he believed the scattering of boulders to have once been part of a tall pyramid. He stated the crevices in the rock bore evidence of this and that the pyramid had undoubtedly been destroyed by some forceful blast. While this is extremely doubtful, it does give the reader an idea of the lore that surrounded the area even before the battle. Also, according to local legend, the name Devil's Den was actually in use before the battle took place. Most everyone in their letters home and the explorations of the battlefield after the fighting referred to the rocks as a desolate and ghostly place or mentioned the ominous character of the rocks. Many others felt that the rocky outcropping actually marked the entrance to a cavern. And while no cavern exists there, those who visit the location can understand the mistake. The rocks are piled so high that the crevices between them seem to plunge down into total darkness. But how the area got its name remains a mystery. Many believe that the strange atmosphere of the area itself may have contributed to the designation. Another legend persists that the Devil's Den was always known for being infested with snakes. The legends say that one gigantic snake in particular eluded the local hunters for so many years and they were never able to capture or kill him. He was allegedly nicknamed the Devil and thus the area of rocks was called his den, thus Devil's Den. No matter how the area got its name, it was apparently already considered a strange and haunted spot before the battle, at least according to Emanuel Bushman. In the years which would follow, the Devil's Den would gain an even more fearsome reputation. On the second day of battle, Devil's Den switched hands multiple times. First the Federals held it, then the Confederates, then the Federals again, then the Confederates, then the Federals, and finally by the end of the day's business, the Confederates held the rocks, the Yankees held the heights. Some of the units of the Confederacy that fought at Devil's Den and up and down the, the Round Tops came from Texas, Arkansas, Alabama, and Georgia. They came out of the woods on the other side of the triangular field which has its own ghostly history and headed for Devil's Den, but they were under fire from the top of the Round Tops by cannon and rifle fire. They were being torn up as they came across that open field. Yankees, on the other hand, at the top of the hills, came from places like New York and Maine and Pennsylvania. There was such bloodshed in the triangular field and under Devil's Den that the place was commonly referred to as the slaughter pen. 
At one point in time, when the Texans were attacking Devil's Den, George Brannard, a color bearer, planted the flag of Texas on the highest rock above Devil's Den, only to be hit by a Union shell. After the Yankees pulled back, the Georgians were reported to have let loose with the infamous Rebel Yell. Now, I don't think there's in existence an honest recording of the Rebel's Yell, or I would play it for you. After the Battle of Gettysburg was over, federal troops came in to assess the damage and try to clean up some of the mess at Devil's Den. And that afternoon, a rain began to fall, and then it became a heavy downpour, and it lasted for several hours. The dead men who were already bloated beyond recognition were now drenched, and decay had set in. No one knows just how long the Confederate dead remained unburied around Devil's Den, but it could have been days or even a few weeks. And many of the bodies were said to not have been buried at all, just tossed into the deep crevices between the rocks. There are stories since the battle and since Gettysburg has become quite a tourist attraction of sightings of soldiers out of place, out of time, around Devil's Den. One story is that two hunters had wandered onto the battlefield one day and gotten lost in the woods near the rocky ridge. They had completely lost their way when one of them looked up and saw the dim figure of a man standing on top of the boulders. He gestured with one hand as if pointing the way, and the hunter realized it was in that direction they needed to travel. He looked back to thank the man, but he was gone. One afternoon in the early 1970s, a woman was said to have gone into the Park Service Information Center to inquire about the possibility of ghosts on the battlefield. National Park Service does not acknowledge otherworldly visitors, but one can imagine just how many times this question must have come up in the course of a day or a week or a year. The ranger on duty was reported to have asked why the woman wanted to know. She explained that she had been out on the battlefield that morning and was photographing the scenery. She had stopped her car at Devil's Den and gotten out to take some photos in the early morning light. The woman stated that she walked into the field of smaller boulders, which are scattered in front of the den itself, and had paused to take a photo. Just as she raised the camera to her eye, she sensed the uncomfortable feeling of someone standing beside her. When she turned to look, she saw that a man had approached her. She described this man as looking like a hippie. Now you gotta think this is in the early 70s. He looked like a hippie with long, dirty hair, ragged clothing, a big floppy hat, and no shoes. The man looked at her and simply said, what you're looking for is over there, he said and pointed behind her. The woman turned her head to see just what the unkempt fellow was pointing at, and when she turned around again, he was gone without a trace. Photos of this they think is a Texan have appeared in other photos when they weren't standing by the people who were the subject of the photo. They have been seen numerous times and described usually the same way. Long hair, ratty clothing, and barefoot with a floppy hat. 
Unfortunately, they considered the Texans to be the worst dressed of the lot of the Confederate soldiers because they put together whatever they could to at least look a lot alike. They really didn't have uniforms per se. I object to say that they looked like they were wild and unkempt. Texans don't look like that. If we do, we're just happy. Well, that's the show for this week. I want to thank you for being along for the ride. And listen again next week for another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments. So have a good week, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.